This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Woo! All right, back at it. Play by Playcast. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download. My name is Joel Godet, and this is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. As always, if you get a chance to leave a rating or review, uh, much appreciated. Throw a couple of stars our way as well. And you can find the pod on social media at PXPCast. I'm at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Back after a week off last week. My apologies if you were like waiting, refreshing your phone on Friday for a new podcast to pop up. Uh, it's a crazy time here. And I, I just didn't have time to tape a podcast for last week. Um, so our streak of 137 consecutive weeks with an episode is snapped. Small tear down the cheek. Uh, but but <laughs> like Cal Ripken, uh, we'll, we'll start a new streak. Keep this thing going again. Um, let's keep with the baseball theme. Donnie Barnes is our guest this week. He is uh, the number two play-by-play voice for the Omaha Storm Chasers in the Pacific Coast League, the AAA affiliate of the Kansas City Royals, and then also does a, a host of other things in and around Omaha. Uh, with Creighton and with Nebraska Omaha, uh, he, he's a voiceover guy. Uh, we'll get into that because there's some super unique and interesting stuff uh, when it comes to voiceover work toward the back half of this podcast. Uh, I've known Donnie's name for a really long time. Uh, we're similar in age, and we're both in A ball together. When I was in the Florida State League and the Carolina League, he was in Visalia in the California League. And uh, he's obviously been very talented for a very long time. So I've known the name. And then he did a podcast similar to this one like six or seven years ago uh, called Candid Voices. And you can find that podcast still if you go to his website, DonnieCast.com. And he has conversations with Doc Emmerich and John Miller and Brian Anderson, Pat Hughes, uh, Mark Boyle, friend of the pod, Joe Castiglione, um, Ken Levine, uh, Dave Van Horn, Scott Fransky, Rick Riz, Greg Schulte, Jerry Howarth, uh, Jim Kelch, friend of the pod, uh, all uh, have conversations with Donnie in a similar vein about their careers and, and how they approach what they do. There are 16 total episodes, so go to DonnieCast.com if you want to check those out. Uh, that's one of the ways I knew of Donnie as well. Uh, he had a really big year this year, though, because he made his Major League debut. New York Times actually wrote a feature on Donnie and kind of the life of a minor league baseball broadcaster and just what it's like, the behind the scenes that normal people don't see and what's fun about it, what's tough about it. Um, and he has in the past and still does call spring training games for the Oakland Athletics um, out in Arizona. So that relationship coupled with the article in the New York Times um, you can find the coverage on this if you, you Google it, actually led to him getting a fill-in opportunity um, for the Oakland A's this summer. So I uh, got a chance to make his Major League debut. A lot of ground to cover on this podcast, from uh, his perspectives on baseball broadcasting to voiceover work. Uh, but where we start is with the Major League debut side of things. What it was like for him uh, to get the call-up and experience a game in the major leagues, uh, first of what will hopefully be many more in his career. Um, he's a prep guy, though, big-time prep guy, and we talk about prep in this podcast, and I don't mean that from like a research about the player's standpoint. Obviously, he, he does that quite well. But we begin today's episode on how he prepared for the broadcast, not on which teams he was learning and not on which stats he wanted to know, but physically on where he was broadcasting. Donnie Barnes prepared to call his one game in the major leagues this summer by studying wind patterns in Oakland and studying 
the flight of the ball in Oakland and getting a feel for what it would be like to physically call a game so that he didn't get up caught off guard, which I thought was really uh, unique, intuitive, and, uh, and, and brilliant, to be honest. That's where we start this week on PXPCast with our guest, Donnie Barnes. Yeah, actually, I did um, because I got to I made sure that I was going to get to the Oakland Coliseum the afternoon of the day before I was going to call a game so that I could go to the game that night before, because, and you know how this is, Joel, different venues, different stadiums, especially in baseball, you have a lot of different vantage points depending on where the press box is. And sometimes that first game in a different ballpark is tough because your, your eyes and your brain aren't quite adjusted to those sight lines that you're not used to. And so it's harder to judge a ball off the bat and tell if it's hit really well, or if it's not and how you should inflect right away. And you want that to be instant. You don't want to be hesitating. And so I knew I was only going to do one game in a ballpark I'd never called a game in before. So I wanted to make sure that I had at least gotten there in time to watch the game the night before from the press level so that I could try to get my brain and my eyes adjusted to how the ball behaves there. And and part of that, I had been I had known from listening to the A's guys talk about this for years that at the Coliseum, because it's sort of enclosed because they built Mount Davis there to get the Raiders back in the 90s. So you got this giant, ugly structure in center field that never even gets used. But because of that, you have these two little openings at the end of that center field structure where the wind blows through. And so it kind of swirls in an odd way. So the flags on one side will be moving one way. The flags on the other side will be pointing the other way. And so it can be tough to read. If you haven't called a game there before and you don't know how the wind works, it can be tough to to read how the ball is going to behave on a high fly ball. So I wanted to look at that stuff the night before and get used to it before I actually had to judge a ball live in my, you know, my first maybe only big league game where I'm only getting to do one night. So, yeah, I actually did. Did it prove beneficial? Yeah, I think it did. I, I felt very comfortable the next night. It helps that. People talk about how bad the Coliseum is and what a what a dump it is, and they certainly do need a new ballpark, and there's a reason they're working frantically to try to build a new ballpark. But from a broadcast standpoint, the Oakland Coliseum is actually great. The press box is at a perfect height. It's right behind home plate. You can see the movement on every pitch. You can read pitches really well. It's a great place to call a game, so that helped a lot too. What were your nerves like, and how did you calm yourself and and treat it? Because I have to imagine at some level you have to walk into a situation in a night like that um, like it's any other night because that's the way you want to perform, but it's not yeah. any other night. <laughs> no, it's not. I, honestly, I was in a really good frame of mind by the time that day came. It was weird because I had two and a half months to think about it because they – they invited me to do the game way back in the middle of June and told me it was going to be August 31st. And so when I got the call, obviously I was really excited, but then I immediately thought after I hung up, God, now I got to think about this for two and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's going to be an interesting mental challenge, but it ended up being really good because it gave me time. I mean, first of all, I, I was able to track and keep a close watch on both the Mariners and the A's for the next two and a half months, which I always keep track of the A's anyway, but I knew who I was going to have to, you know, who the opponent was going to be for a long time. And, and also it gave me time to talk to a lot of other mentors and guys who've called a lot of big league games, guys who've only called a couple. My broadcast partner here in Omaha, Mark Nasser has done nine Royals games over the years. So he was very experienced at, at that. And so I got to hear his thoughts about it. So I talked to a lot of people who all basically said the same thing, which was, look, yeah, you're going to be nervous, but just do the basics well. You don't have to do anything more than that. You're not going to tell A's fans on August 31st of a season anything they don't already know about their team. Mm. You don't have to have a bunch of fancy stories or biographical info. You don't have to do anything fancy. Just call the game. Be fundamentally solid. Give the score often. Pinpoint the ball. That's it. You don't have to worry about anything else. If you do those things well, you'll be great. And so I'd internalized that enough. And honestly, by the time the day got there, I just felt great. And I was really grateful. Um, I was determined just to enjoy that day and not worry about, you know, is this going to lead to anything else? Or is this the only big league game I'll ever get to call? 
I was just determined to enjoy that day, to be grateful for it, to kind of celebrate that, you know, after 10 years of doing games and a lot of times thinking that I would never get to do a big league game, that for this one day, I got to be in the big leagues. And a lot of people never get to experience that. A lot of people who deserve to experience that never do. And so I was really grateful. I felt great. And I, I thought I did a good job with the three innings I had and the pre and post game stuff I did. And uh, I just, it was an awesome day. Everybody was kind and welcoming and it was great. I, I don't know how else to describe it other than it was great. It felt great. And I was happy with how it turned out. I know they often tell big leaguers when they get called up, um, don't look up, you know, just go out on the field and, and don't look at the stadium because, you know, if you look down, it looks the same as it does in AAA. Um, yeah. Is there a similarity in terms of broadcasting in, to, to not looking up and, and just trying to put yourself in the same place you're used to? Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's kind of impossible because you are at a much higher vantage point. You know, yeah, you'll hear true, yeah. you'll hear players talk about the third deck effect where when you go up to the big leagues, it's tougher to play outfield, for example, because, uh, you know, you have that extra deck of, of fans that you have to deal with when you're tracking a ball that in the minor leagues you don't. So there is a similar phenomenon, I guess, as a broadcaster. I think the other thing that helped me be fairly relaxed about it was that the, the few hours leading up to the game were so jam-packed with stuff to do that I almost didn't have time to get nervous yeah. because, you know, you go down on the field during batting practice and you watch, in this case, it was Vince recording the manager's show with Bob Melvin and then a bunch of people down there, A's employees, um, A's beat writers that I've known from spring training for the last five years, you know, they all wanted to greet me and talk to me and they were all so, you know, welcoming and, um, so I was just, I was talking with a bunch of people, catching up with a bunch of people. And then the, um, uh, Chris Townsend, who does the ACE pregame shows live on site every day. He asked me to be on the pregame show with him. So I walked out to the, the treehouse fan area in left field to do a live pregame interview with him and then walk back. And by the time I got to the booth, it was time to go on the air. So there really wasn't a lot of time to think about it or mean, or be nervous. And I think that helped a lot. Let's go back to the very beginning, if if I can. Then we'll 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 like we'll do this in some sort of like weird movie scriptish way where we we we'll we get to we'll the, Tarantino it. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> rewind all the way to the start. Um, you you first got into broadcasting in Alaska, uh, correct? Yeah, that was my first. That was my first paying gig. Yeah. And and you had you ever really? I mean, I know you were a fan of it. Um, but had you ever really done it before that? Not seriously, no. <laughs> what was it like, like going out to the Alaska Baseball League for a summer and being like, all right, like sink or swim, let's see how this goes? Yeah, it was awesome. It was terrifying. Uh, it turned out to be a lot of fun. Uh, the first the first game I did, actually, the opening night got rained out, so I had to think about it for an extra day, <laughs> which didn't help. And then, you know, much like in college, I'd done color commentary on a few games in college for my division three school with the guy who just did their games for free over the internet as a hobby. He's a lawyer and a former aspiring play-by-play guy who still enjoys doing it on the side. And he was nice enough to invite me to sit in with him for a few games. But other than that, never done a game before. I'd certainly never done play-by-play for a live broadcast before. And so that first game started in the Alaska Baseball League, summer of 2007. And uh, I remember the first batter for the visiting team against Fairbanks, he hit a one-hopper to the second baseman, and I realized I had no idea who the second baseman was because I hadn't filled out a scorebook. I hadn't made a defensive chart. Just nobody ever taught me any of this stuff. (laughs) Guy hits a ground ball to the second baseman. I'm like, and there's a, a ground ball to second. And they'll throw to first and he's out. <laughs> I don't know. There's all this basic stuff that, you know, guys who go to Syracuse or who go to Northwestern who actually study this stuff and get to do it a bunch in college learn very early. Uh, I did not know. So it was a steep learning curve, but I guess I was able to learn fast enough that people still seem to like it enough that I didn't get fired and went from there. So how did you get good at it? What was your learning curve in terms of, figuring it out on the fly and asking the right questions and and who did you ask those of? Yeah, I think it helped that I guess I had a certain amount of natural aptitude for it, even though my fundamentals were very rough, just because I grew up without much TV in my house. So I listened to the radio a lot and I read a lot of books because 
We didn't really have a video game console. We only had the basic channels. We didn't have cable TV. So it was a lot of radio and books growing up, which which helped me quite a bit. You'd be surprised um, how many times we actually hear that yeah. in, in this forum. Yeah. it's. I think in my case, it helped a ton um, because I, I learned how to how to speak. And, and I listened to a lot of growing up in LA, you hear all kinds of amazing play-by-play guys from Vin Scully and, uh, you know, all the chick Hearn. I listened to a ton, all those guys. So I think that helped give me at least a natural sort of instinct for it, even without any training. But then from there, especially once I got into the minor leagues, I, I started to reach out and, and try to make connections with a bunch of people who'd been doing it a lot longer than me. Uh, because I, I knew that, this had to be way harder than it seemed. There had to be a bunch of stuff that I just didn't know. Uh, I was at least smart enough to know that right away. So a lot of it was when I when I started going to big league ballparks while I was in the Cal League in Visalia, because Visalia is in central California. It's not a good spot from a media standpoint because there are no TV stations. There are very few radio stations. There were very few other opportunities besides the minor league team I was broadcasting for. But the one advantage to being in Central California is you're right in the middle of five big league ballparks. And then Arizona is still within driving distance, too. So really it's six. And I decided that since I had no network coming out of college, I had to build one myself. And the only way to do that was to drive to where they were at these big league ballparks. Nobody was going to come to Visalia to find me or to talk to me. So, So that was what I did. I spent a lot of off days my first three or four years in Visalia, just driving to big league ballparks, getting media passes and shaking hands with big league broadcasters and introducing myself to them and asking if I could send them, you know, a demo inning for them to critique. And a lot of them were very nice and said yes. And, um, and so that was how I started getting mentorship from a lot of guys who've been doing this for a lot of years at the highest level. And so I was able to, I was able to learn from them and implement what they told me fairly quickly and so that that helped a ton this may be a nothing burger of a question because maybe you like reached out ahead of time and sent emails and set things up but like did you would you go to a stadium obviously you're talking to pr people ahead of time but like just knock on the door of a booth and say hi i'm donnie i'm the visalia voice and i just wanted to say hello (laughs) can i talk to you yeah sometimes but it's like anything else it's very daunting and, and feels difficult at first but then as you generate some momentum it gets a lot easier so one of my big breaks early on was meeting jerry howarth the mm-hmm. longtime voice of the blue jays there was a guy in in visalia rance mullenix who played for the blue jays for 15 years and was part of their world series team he's from the visalia area so he lived there and at the time he was actually doing tv for them on color about 40 games a year whenever they'd come out west and uh, so the the Blue Jays were coming to Anaheim to play the Angels, and he got me a, a press pass and introduced me to Jerry. And and Jerry was unbelievably nice. Like he took took me in. Once I sent him a sample, he was very complimentary. He introduced me to a bunch of other big league guys over email. So he really opened a lot of doors for me. That when big league broadcasters came to the West coast. I was able to email them or have him email them on my behalf to introduce me and say, Hey, this is Donnie. He's a, he's a great young broadcaster, a really good kid. Just going to come meet you at this ballpark, you know? So, so Jerry, I, I owe a lot to Jerry and to Rance for introducing me to him. You mentioned another name too. And that was that you grew up listening to Vin Scully. Um, and I know you've yeah. met Vin Scully too. Um, <laughs> first off, what is that like? And uh, maybe a silly question, but I'm curious where you go with it. Um, what makes Vince Scully good? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know I'm hardly alone in talking about Vince Scully <laughs> being an influence. I mean, anybody who grew up in Southern California talks about Vin, and other people who didn't grow up in Southern California probably get sick of hearing us talk about Vin sometimes. But, but yeah, I mean, he was he was the main guy I listened to night after night as a kid. Meeting him is it's it's very difficult to describe. He he had a lot of, I don't want to say handlers because that makes him sound like a diva, which he certainly was not. But, you know, so many people wanted to meet him. He was a rock star everywhere the Dodgers went. Everybody wanted to meet him and shake his hand, uh, not just broadcasters, writers, fans, everybody, even players. So he had several layers of, of people that you had to get through just to meet him. And uh, I, I think I was able to. I forget how I how I was able to arrange it, but somehow I somehow I got through his several layers and was introduced to him. It was a game in in Arizona, I think in 2009, and he was 
when when you meet Vin, you realize why everybody loves him. He he treats you and makes you feel like he's known you his whole life. He finds some person that you know in baseball that he knows too, that you have some mutual connection with, and he tells you to say hello to them for him and you know give him his very best. And so yeah, he's just makes you feel like you've always known him. Makes you feel comfortable. He's happy to take a picture with you. Uh, <laughs> oh, so a picture? Hey, well. Let me let me make sure I'm on my Sunday best. And he straightens up his tie and, you know, he does this probably 40 times a day and takes a picture with you and couldn't be nicer. And, yeah, for for those of us who who get to do it, those couple those couple minutes are, you know, it's a, it's one of those lifetime highlights. And for him, it was it was a normal everyday thing. But the, the grace that he handled it with was was really impressive. He's obviously a master storyteller, um, I think. I mean, of, of all the things he does well. But but first and foremost, that's what comes to mind. Um, what is it to you that made him telling stories great, and that you tried to glean from listening to him as a kid? And that's an a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I I really try to not be a Vin clone because some guys who grow up in Southern California end up talking like Vin, mm. almost to where they have a quasi. New York accent because that's how he talked. So I was very careful when I when I actually started doing this f- professionally. I actually stopped listening to and watching Dodger games for a lot of years because I knew that I had a lot of Vin isms in me, and that's good to a certain extent. But I wanted to make sure I didn't just sound like him. But I, I think first of all, the the warmth in his voice he always he always made you feel so comfortable listening to him. He always made you feel like he was talking just to you, uh, just very personal with his delivery. I, I, th- I think the biggest thing with his stories, and people will always talk about, you've talked before about how he could start a story with two outs in an inning and somehow a guy would foul off 10 pitches <laughs> and it would wrap up at the perfect time for him to finish his story. But a lot of that is because he was so good at knowing where his beginning and end points were in a story. When you decide to launch into some anecdote in the middle of an inning, I think you have to you have to know where you're going with it and what the payoff is so that if a double play suddenly happens and takes you out of the inning, you can get to that payoff. Even if you have to take a shortcut to get there, you can at least give people the payoff and wrap up the story in time. And he was really good at that. It wasn't just a coincidence. And then sometimes he would he would just say, well, we'll talk about this more when we come back. If he, if he really wanted to extend it to another inning, he would and he'd make it sound graceful. But but yeah, I don't think it's an accident that his story seemed perfectly timed because no matter what the timing ended up being and how much time he ended up having to tell that story, you, he could tell either the short or the long version of it and arrive at the same place either way. How do you tell stories uh, and how do you get stories uh, in baseball? Uh, because, it, I mean, that's that's such what that medium is in broadcasting. Yeah, a, a lot of it. I started looking at what had happened on this day in baseball history a lot because I'm a history. I majored in history. I love it, both the history of baseball and sports in general and and history in a broader sense. So I started looking at what had happened on each day in baseball history during each season. And I would if there was something that caught my eye, I would research that more so that I could try to sort of tell the story behind that if I could. And I would make some notes before the game and. Um, again, try to figure out where the start and end point of that story was that I wanted to get to. Um, so that was that was how I developed my sort of storytelling style during a game was figure out what I could talk about if that game went sideways and I needed to try to keep it interesting in the late innings and then how how I was going to tell that and, and make it be interesting and get to a place that seemed like it, ha- it had a payoff. So that was how I learned to do it. Um, I think I think sometimes sometimes we can focus too much on trying to get stories in as baseball broadcasters when really you know the game is the thing and the pitch is the thing and if the if each pitch isn't a central part of the broadcast and you're getting off of that to tell a bunch of stories then you're probably doing it wrong and you're getting off track so um this is going to sound weird as a as a Vin Scully disciple, but sometimes stories can almost be overrated in baseball play-by-play if you're not doing the basics and the fundamentals really well because everything builds off of those. So 
But yeah, I think figuring out how to tell stories from baseball's past really well was how I how I learned. This will sound maybe silly, but I, what are the what are the fundamentals and how do you make those sound the most interesting um, so that and obviously for three hours you're going to work in some different varying degrees of color and story, et cetera. But, you know, if you had to, to sit down and and keep the pitch, the main focus and central to what's going on, um, but not just be the bland blase of here's the pitch, ball, yeah. two and two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I... I listen to your podcast a lot, like, like I've told you in the past. And I, a lot of your guests, like you had Dave Fleming on, you had uh, John Shambi on the last couple of years. And I, I really liked what both of them said when they were on with you, where they, they talked about the pitch being the most important thing and that mm-hmm. every pitch is important. It means something and it matters. And you need to be able to draw that out. I think for me, because, because I played, college baseball and I wasn't very good. And I was mainly a role guy coming off the bench late in innings. I rarely started, but when you play college baseball, you, you gain a real appreciation for the fact that every game is really important, especially in college. Cause you only play at my level. We played 30 or 40 games a year. So every game means a lot. And so every pitch was so important in college and your teammates are all up on the top rail of the dugout, every pitch and they're chirping and they're talking constantly. And a seven to one game can become a seven, seven game really fast, especially when you play in, in a junior college, like I did. (laughs) I mean, you're up six runs in the eighth inning. One of your relievers comes in and falls behind the leadoff guy three and oh, and your, your head coach is already swearing under his breath because he's <laughs> like, he's going to walk this leadoff guy and that's trouble. And then he walks that guy and then he goes two and one on the next guy. And now our coaches F bombs are getting louder. And, you know, people are just sitting and watching are going seven to one. What's he so stressed about? But you know what? That can turn around so fast and it happens a lot. And trying to find so an extra mound in the bullpen to warm up a third yeah, ex- guy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in pro ball, obviously there are way more games, but again, even though I didn't have experience broadcasting, I think my playing experience gave me an appreciation for how much every pitch matters when I started doing games, because even in a minor league season, if it's 14 to three in the eighth inning, every pitch is still important for the guys that are involved. It's their careers. It's their dreams. It's their Mm. ability to earn a living and set their families up financially for generations that are at stake. There's a lot at stake on every pitch. It may look very serene and idyllic to people that aren't dialed into that, but there's a lot of pressure and there are a lot of wheels turning on every pitch. So I think you need to do, you need to do both. You need to paint the overall picture and describe the beautiful sunset and the green grass and the crowd and colorful shirts that the summer camp groups are wearing in the outfield berm and the smell of the grilled onions down below there. The, the guy that just out muscled a nine-year-old for a foul ball on the stand, you can tell stories, you can be entertaining, you humanize the players, all of that's awesome. But if you lose sight of the fact that every pitch is the single most important thing and that the showdown between the pitcher and the batter is the central beating heart of a baseball game. If you don't like or appreciate that about baseball, then you probably shouldn't be broadcasting baseball because that is the central drama. And especially now where there are so many long at bats and extended battles between batters and pitchers like hitters are trying to run up a guy's pitch count pitchers are putting max effort into every pitch they're tougher to hit than they've ever been before they're throwing harder than they've ever thrown before so that pitcher batter showdown is more central to the game now than it's ever been and if you don't make it central to the vast majority of your broadcast it's going to be boring it's like i think i think dave fleming said this on your show if you wait until the ball's put in play to act like there's action in a game baseball is really boring to watch and to listen to so you have to be able to draw out how is a pitcher attacking the hitter is he gone has he gone inside did he get to 0 and 2 and then go in with a fastball twice maybe he goes change up away now on 2 and 2 or does he try to bust him inside a third time does he go to his slider i'm not saying you have to try to predict every pitch like your tony romo but at least raise the question, what's he going to do next after he's just thrown three straight sliders? Is he going to throw a fourth? You usually don't do that. Is he going to go fastball up and in now? What's he going to try next? I think that's, again, maybe because I, I played not very well, that's always been the most interesting part of the game to me. 
And I think it, it makes it so much more interesting to listen to when you can bring out that drama of, of every pitch like that. Well, and all while the ball is in play at an all-time low, too. So it's those types exactly. of things are, are, are the most important. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's your book look like? Or what do you have in front of you on any given night? I'm pretty basic. I don't I don't have a bunch of – I'm not somebody that uses a bunch of colored pens to, <laughs> to indicate different kinds of plays or RBIs. I don't write a ton in my book. I might write a guy's basic stats maybe – under his name, or if there's something, if there's some um, really good anecdote or or story about his background that I want to make sure I at least have in mind and don't forget about, I might scribble some note about it under his name. But a lot of nights I'm pretty basic. I write the guy's names, um, and that's about it. I I'm not somebody that goes back and and looks at my scorebook from years ago very much. I really just use it for that night and then I move on. I do keep my books just because I'm kind of sentimental, but I almost never go back and look at them. So I'm not, I'm not somebody that has a a ton of stuff in front of me. I will have a bunch of tabs open on my on my browser, on my internet, on my laptop, and I will often have a a legal pad that I've jotted notes on before a game. Um, so I, I do like to make a, a pad of notes for myself. How do you you organize kind of what you know and what you want to talk about um, in that respect and keeping it more so not for that night, but listen, like I get this nugget today and it's the last time we're playing Nashville, but this is something I might want to talk about next time they come through and I need to remember, uh, I need to remember that I've got it then. Like, do you have a system of of trying to keep that stuff uh, organized? Well, it's different at different times of the year. When I get ready for spring training games, I have a massive Word document on every team I'm going to see. And I have you know, what a guy did last year. I look through for articles on you know, that, that beat writers have written on this guy's outlook for this year and where he fits into the team and what they're looking for from him and what they want him to improve on. And I've so I have I have articles and notes and all kinds of stuff on every person I might see. And then I'll a lot of those guys end up in AAA during the regular season, so mm-hmm. I can refer back to that. Um, but when I when I'm doing games in Omaha, you know, I'm doing games with Mark, and I'm I'm the second broadcaster, so I'm on color for a lot of the game, and then I'm doing three innings on play by play, and that's actually been a really good exercise for me because, and this was something that a, a couple uh, a couple big league guys told me when I took the job because in Visalia I was doing. Um, I had a number two guy for a couple years, but after that, I was all by myself, nine innings a night, 140 games a year. Um, so when you're pre- when you're preparing to be the second guy on a broadcast team, it's in some ways it's much different than being the lead guy or the only guy because um, you have to so sometimes the things that you would talk about in the first few innings, like about the starting pitcher that night. Well, Mark does a ton of prep and a lot of homework for every game too. So he might've already talked about it by the time I'm doing play by play and that's okay. That's great. So what being part of a broadcast team, instead of just being solo forces you and teaches you to do is to really pay attention to your partner, really be dialed in with him, have great dialogue and rapport and chemistry with him or her, whoever it is. And if they've already told a story or given a guy's background, don't repeat that when you're on play-by-play. And that's a really valuable experience because if you get to the big leagues, you're probably going to get on as the number three or the number two guy in a lot of cases, and you're going to be in that same spot. And something that multiple people told me was that some minor league broadcasters are so used to only doing games by themselves and being able to prep for and talk about whatever they want at any time. They're not really that practiced in working with somebody else and having to be much more of a a team player and somebody who plays off of them and what they've raised and brought up earlier in the game. So that's been really good for me to learn how to do. You know, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned that because I, like I've never, my first year in minor league baseball out of college, I had a partner. Um, and then after that, I did solo games. And, and I still, you know, when I do Ball State baseball now, I still, for the most part, I'm doing solo games. And our associate AD is the former coach. And we, we have a great rapport. And I said, hey, PQ, why don't you one day, like, come do a game with me? And it was funny because we're in the first inning. And he's not a broadcaster, so he's there just for the analysis. And yeah, I kind of thought to myself, I looked at him and was like, I, I don't know what to do. 
do with you <laughs> right now. Um, like I, I know how to use an analyst in, in, in football and basketball, but I've like, I, I haven't done this before in baseball. Um, and, and sometimes you know, like the only, when, when I'd done baseball with a partner before too, it was another play-by-play guy. And a lot yeah. of times we'll get in the situation where you, know, you can listen to some major league broadcasts and there might be two guys on the air, but you only hear for the most part, one at a time. And then occasionally right. they'll do some banter, but a lot of times they just kind of let the other guy have his space. Um, how do you call a game or, or how have you learned to call a game, um, with somebody else in the booth and somebody of uh, a particular background, be it another play-by-play guy or, or someone who was there as a, as a baseball expert? Yeah, I think a lot of it, I, I wouldn't beat yourself up about not knowing what to do for one game with an analyst when you don't usually have one, cause it is really hard. <laughs> And and especially if you haven't worked with somebody before and or they haven't done much broadcasting before, it can be even more challenging. So it's usually not something that you are really good at right away in that first game with somebody else. It takes time to build that chemistry and that rapport. Um, I'm really I'm really lucky here in Omaha. Part of the reason I took this job was because I heard from a bunch of people I trusted that Mark was an awesome guy and has no ego and loves working with people and gets along really well with everybody. And they're absolutely right. Mark and I have a great time because we have the, we have basically the same sense of humor. Like we're 15 years apart, but we laugh at the same things. Uh, we have the, the same opinions on a lot of things. So we're just, we work together really well and our, our timing and our ability to anticipate what each other's going to say. And when, like I can, when I'm, when I'm on play by play, I can just see out of the corner of my eye, Mark kind of cock his head toward me. And I know immediately he's going to say something and I turn to him and that's, that's the kind of rapport you develop, but you can only do that over time and working with somebody. So it's probably not going to happen on that first game with, with someone and that's okay. But um, I, I think if you're like doing some, some basketball TV now, I've been working with a couple different analysts who were former players for the school I broadcast for here in Omaha who had never done any kind of TV or, or analysis work before. And so that's been interesting trying to talk and coach them through and learn how to work with them and have them learn how to do this on the fly. Um, And I think just encouraging them to keep it simple, but also encouraging them to speak up when they, when they see something that perks their interest and, and making sure they know if they're a former player or a coach, making sure they know that you know that they see way more things that that I'm never going to see, uh, and that and that that's that's part of their gift and their ability to to bring that out and help people at home see that. So I think empowering them to to speak up when they see something, uh, letting them know that some things they might think are obvious actually aren't to a lot of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Just making them feel confident and feel at ease with you and with with the process letting them know that they don't have to be perfect that if they stumble over a word it's not the end of the world if something doesn't come out exactly the way they wanted it to i i tell ex-players a lot listen it's just like playing sometimes you're going to turn the ball over you make a bad pass you strike out whatever move on to the next play don't dwell on it it's fine most people don't care they'll 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 still stay with you and everything will be great so the more you can just make your partner comfortable the better it is. And then as you do more games with them, you get more comfortable with each other and you learn each other's timing and it just, it gets better and better. Tell me about going to Omaha and, and, and taking that position as well. Um, and, Cause it's a seasonal job, correct? It is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how you, well, cause the thing is, is like, you're not just the voice of, or, or the one of the voices of the storm chasers with Mark. Uh, you've been able to expand your reach in the market to work for a lot of the other institutions, teams, et cetera, that are there. Um, yeah. Because going there, that's got to be a leap of blind faith saying, like, I'm not going to make a lot. Like, I've got to make enough money to eat. Uh, right. <laughs> particularly when it's cold outside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was your approach? Did you have any hesitation at first in doing that? And then what was your approach to say, like, listen, I've got I've to find some other things here, um, both to, you know, to make money, but also maybe satiate your, yourself in a broadcasting standpoint so you're not – not on the air for six months. Yeah, it was, it was a huge leap of faith and it was very scary. I mean, it was terrifying. That's, there's no other way to put it. It was very scary, very frightening. And I won't say I had a lot of second thoughts because once I decided to do it, I was very committed to it. 
but that was the first time I'd ever applied for a number two job at a higher level for, I was in Visalia for eight years, which was, I loved Visalia and I still do. There are a lot of great things about that town that people who've never been there have no idea how cool a place it is. And I love a lot of people there still, and I miss it in some ways, but professionally I was new if, if I wanted to get to higher levels, I was going to have to go somewhere else because there just weren't enough opportunities there. Um, so I'd finished runner up for four different higher level jobs. I'd come so close so many times to moving up uh, for whatever reason, had fallen just short over and over. And it got so frustrating and so discouraging after a while that I had just gotten to a point where I was ready to, to just try anything else. I just felt like I was out of ways to grow in a, in a substantial way in Visalia. I felt like I wasn't going to get much better doing games there. And it was, I, again, I, I love the Visalia front office. I'm still friends with all of them. They're awesome people. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity they gave me and how they supported me over the years, but it was not a, it was not a job I could have kept doing much longer because Visalia is a tiny market. We had a tiny staff, which meant that as the broadcaster slash salesperson slash media relations person, you had to wear so many hats and do so many different things. And you had to be on point and hitting your sales goals every year. There was no, well, I'm just not going to worry about sales much this year because I've sold well for six years and they'll understand. No, they, they did not have the room or the budget to carry any passengers. So there was always pressure. There was always an expectation that you had to keep producing because that was just the business model and that was how it worked. And then you're also going to update the website and you're going to run social media and you're going to call 140 games and travel with the team and then, you know, start helping plan and brainstorm for the next season as soon as one ended. And it just, it really ground me down over eight years. So I just got to a point where I, I decided I need to move somewhere else. I don't know where, but I need to move somewhere where there are more opportunities and where I have a chance to do stuff at a higher level. So when the, when the storm chasers opportunity came along, I decided to go for it. And I, I knew that it also involved doing 70 on camera in stadium pregame shows a year, which really appealed to me because I always wanted to do TV and had never gotten any opportunity to do so. We didn't even have a video board in Visalia. That's how old that ballpark is there, <laughs> even though they've renovated a lot and it's very nice in a lot of ways still one of the only parks without a video board. So I had never gotten to do any kind of on-camera stuff and I always wanted to. So I knew this would, A, this would get me to AAA, B, it would get me in front of a camera a ton of times and give me a bunch of reps in a short amount of time to try to get comfortable doing that. And I just decided, and I'd always wanted to get into voiceover work and find a way to make that be a big part of sort of freeing me up to do other stuff and not have to be tied down to an office job and all these other administrative and sales things throughout the rest of the year. So yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I had already started to take steps in that direction. I had already gone down to LA that January, it just turned out a month before I got this Omaha opportunity. I had recorded a, a professional voiceover demo with a guy in, in an LA studio who that's all he does. And it turned out really awesome because he made it sound that way. And so I, I had always wanted to get into voiceovers and find a way to make that work. And I just decided, all right, I'm going to move to Omaha. I'm going to get myself to AAA. I know that there are a couple other Division I schools there, and maybe there's stuff I can do with them in the offseason. And I'm going to figure out a way to, to try to make money doing voiceovers from home during this baseball season, since I won't have to go into the office every day and I won't have to show up till 3 o'clock in the afternoon every day. I knew I was going to have the rest of the day free to work on trying to build up some kind of voiceover income. So I just decided I was going to do it and I would have no other choice other than to find a way to make it work. <laughs> sometimes when you, sometimes when you feel desperate and you feel like you're out of options and you feel like you're so, you're so uh, craving a new challenge and some kind of new or different horizon, it can be a really powerful thing because it makes you do things you normally wouldn't be willing to do. And it makes you take risks. You wouldn't normally feel bold enough to take and i think that was the case with me and it, it ended up working out well what was it like the first time you heard your name on a denny's ad <laughs> well the thing with denny's is it's it's an internal a lot of these things that i do with some of these companies is just internal employee training oh. so i've never been on yeah i know <laughs> and so i've never been on a on a, a national ad or anything like that but, uh voiceover is a lot like broadcasting in that 
most people who aren't in it only see the the Jim Nances and the the Joe Bucks of the world and assume that if you're not at that level, you must not be a success. But you know, we all know that there are people having a you know, a great life in small town radio in South Dakota. There are great gigs everywhere, and there's a lot of work at a lot of different levels. And voiceovers like that too, especially now. Once you start paying attention to all the places you hear voices, you realize, well, somebody had to record that. Somebody had to record that. There's a ton of stuff. So there's a lot that's below that tip of the iceberg that you don't think about. And so a lot of it is employee internal training. So for Denny's, they were they were going to a some kind of new internal software that all their employees had to learn. And so they ended up having me voice the the training videos to teach their employees how to use this internal training or this internal software that they're switching to. So a bunch of employees who probably uh, <clears throat> were rolling their eyes at having to learn this new system got to listen to me explain to them what this new system does and how it works. So I'm sure I'm sure I am their favorite person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never really thought about like who has to be the voice on the like like the sexual harassment video. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and I've done those. <laughs> I have done those. I did a, I did a series of training videos for a, a franchisee who owned a bunch of Domino's pizza franchises in Florida. Yeah. And it was teaching all his employees about their policies. And I learned that if you're a Domino's employee, you, you can wear either a black or a white undershirt under your Domino's uniform. No huh. other colors are acceptable, Joel. So if you ever work for Domino's, Black and white T-shirts under your uniform only, just That's so you know. actually fascinating in some ways. <laughs> it is. You do. You learn a lot of random stuff. I just voiced one for a guy who's uh, – he runs a apparently a website called BritishShortHairs.com, which is all information Sorry, about British short hair cats. <laughs> okay. And uh, so I just, I just learned randomly that British short hair cats, you should not give them milk after their kittens because they can't <laughs> process it anymore and it will make them sick. I did not know that. So, yeah, you learn a lot of random stuff. It's kind of fun in that way. Has any of that ever become applicable on a baseball broadcast? Oh, that's a good question. Because I feel like I... there's got to be a place for British short hair <laughs> cats at some point. <laughs> well, I, I just learned that one, so I haven't had a chance to work that in yet. We'll see how that comes up. But, uh, yeah, I, well, I've done a lot of sort of medical or medical-related things, hmm. so I've ended up like I'm voicing a series of long videos right now for somebody who's putting together this anatomy course that's designed to teach muscular and bone anatomy to, I guess, kids and high schoolers. So it's written in a really fun way and it introduces a bunch of characters to help you remember the different, different bones and muscles and groups and structures. And so I've learned a lot about different muscles in the body just from doing that, that uh, sometimes when, uh, like when we travel for women's basketball and I room with our athletic trainer and he talks about a certain muscle. I go, oh, I know what that muscle is now. That's kind of cool. So I don't know if I've really used a bunch of it in a broadcast yet, but I do feel like I have a lot of random knowledge that might come up at some point. I guess it never it never hurts. How much consideration do you put into vocal performance, too? Um, and obviously, if you're doing voiceovers, that that's I mean, that's that's it. Um, but from a baseball standpoint or any sport, um, how much? Have you done training or, or how have you found your, yeah. your instrument? Yeah, I had to do, I've had to do quite a bit, actually. When I first started, you know, when you're, when you're broadcasting at very low levels, people tend to tell you, you sound great no matter what. Yeah. Um, but oh gosh, when I listened to my, my stuff from 10 years ago, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to speak properly at all. I was speaking from very deep in my throat. I was very gravelly. I, I think I was trying to have this deep voice when I really didn't yet. And so I had to, I, I have worked with several different voice coaches over the years to, to keep refining and improving how I speak, uh, how I, how I use my voice in, in big moments to try to inflect it at a, at a spot that's in that, in that sweet spot. So yeah, I've worked with several different people and, and done a lot of work on my voice to try to learn how to how to speak in a way that's sustainable because my first few years during minor league baseball and doing 140 games a year, my voice would be shot by the end of the season. And I didn't know why, and I didn't know how to, how to prevent that. And so it wasn't until I, I went to somebody who had worked with a lot of, um, with a lot of news anchors that I learned how to speak in a way that was sustainable, that I could do day after day and not feel ground down and tired all the time. And I've also, I've also done a lot of reading and studying on how to take care of, myself in general and my voice in particular and um 
just how to be healthy in general. Uh, that's been a big, that was a big learning curve for me too. And I, I do, I am pretty, I'm pretty health conscious because I, I have to speak every single day a lot and some days more than others. And, you know, when you're, when you're run down or you're a little sick, your voice is the first place you feel it. And that's not a, that's not great news when you have to use your voice for a living every single day. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty militant about eating well. I don't drink a lot besides water and, you know, occasional juice, but not even a lot of that. I basically just drink water. I don't drink soda. I'm, I don't know. I, I just feel like I have to be hyper aware and um, hmm. uh, and very and, and careful to take care of myself. And I don't I don't really consider it depriving myself. I like being healthy in general. I like working out. That's fun for me. So I grew up in a pretty health conscious household in the first place. So but it wasn't until I started having to rely on my voice that I got motivated to learn why this stuff works and why you do certain things to, to take care of it. I don't want to take too much more of your time, uh, Donnie, but I did want to ask you, um, whatever happened to Jimmy Simmons? Yeah. <laughs> he retired after oh. after one year. Yeah. Yeah, Jimmy Simmons was my alter ego character that I used in Alaska in my first year because they, the Gold Panners were a very quirky uh, operation. They were run by a family who had run them for 50 years or so, and they were very sort of irreverent, and uh, they, they demanded that, they basically told me up front that we don't really care what you sound like. All we care is that our broadcast doesn't sound like anybody else's. So <laughs> I can do uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had listened to a lot of Phil Hendry growing up in LA and people that didn't grow up in LA probably don't probably don't know who Phil Hendry is, but he was for a long time. He hosted a, a nighttime a satirical talk show that sounded like it was a real talk show with a very serious straight laced host. But then he would have these crazy guests on who were just kind of out there enough that he went, who are these people? And gosh, they're saying some ridiculous outlandish things, but they were just real enough that you thought maybe it was real. And people who were fans of him knew that it was all him doing all of these voices. And he had these recurring characters that he'd created who all had their own sort of backstory and quirks. And so every hour he would have a different one of his characters on as his quote unquote guest. And because L.A. is such a huge market and there are always people driving around flipping through the radio, he would always get people who didn't know it was a joke to be enraged by what his characters were saying and call in and argue with him. And so he would. He would take the caller's side as the straight-laced host who was appalled at what his characters were saying, and then he would he would backtalk as his character, and he'd switch back and forth so fast, and he'd talk into a phone as his character, so it sounded like, you know, the guest was on the phone when he really wasn't. And so he was so good at it that he would create this whole theater, and the whole point was to sort of make fun of talk show call-in people who were just crazy enough to think that everybody else should hear their opinion. That was the whole point of his show. So I thought it was brilliant, and uh, so I decided to have a, an alter ego character in Alaska. That would be my uh, that would be my way of separating myself. And it's the kind of thing that you do before you realize just how hard it is to do the thing the correct way, like the normal way. You assume that's easy, so you need to do something that's totally out of the norm. And then once I learned how to, you know, the things that I actually needed to work on to be an actually competent play-by-play -play broadcaster, I decided that was not really something I needed to keep doing. But for one summer, it was fun. Um, I don't even know if I like, I, I don't know if I could keep a straight face if I tried. So kudos. <laughs> um, I sometimes didn't probably. <laughs> if I can wind back um, to where we began and uh, you've obviously done a ton to this point in your career. Um, what do you think is harder getting to the point you're at now or getting to the point where you still want to be? Um, and do you feel like you're close to, to turning that corner and, and, and getting to that ultimate goal? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I guess it's, I guess it's impossible to answer that definitively because who knows? Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> um, but I'd like to think it's been harder to get where I am now because I mean, I feel like, hopefully the most difficult parts of my career are past me. Not to say there won't be tough things in the future. There are always challenges at every level. And I think doing spring training games has taught me that where when you're around big league broadcasters, you see the big leagues. When, when you first start in this industry, you see the big leagues as these, this exalted Mount Olympus with these gods who sit up on this, 
this mountain looking down at everybody else and gosh life must be so perfect up there and when you actually meet big league broadcasters and you talk to them and if you're around them for a month out of every season you realize that a they're just people and b they still have normal people problems too sometimes they still face the same difficulties that a lot of us do so i think i've i've been able to internalize that yeah the big leagues are great and there are a lot of great things about them or about getting there but it doesn't if you're looking to if you're looking to that or you're waiting to be at that level to be happy or joyful or content or to feel good about yourself it's going to disappoint you because it's like it can't hold that ultimate weight of being the ultimate point of your life or your whole existence it was never designed to do that so um so i think just persisting to be where i am now i'm like you said, I'm not a, a network guy. I'm not a full-time big league guy. I'm not Adam Amin or Joe Davis or anybody like that. But uh, we're starting where I was with no training and actually starting a couple years after most of my peers because I was in college for six years because of sports injuries. I'm proud of how far I've come from from a, a small start. And I'm proud of where I've gotten to so far. And I've had a lot of help and mentorship along the way. And I don't know. I, I don't know if I'll end up at a network or with a big league team. If I do, that's awesome. And I'm going to keep working hard to to try to make that happen. But either way, I'm going to keep getting better. I'm going to keep trying to expand and do more every year and refine what I already do. And if that means I'm in Omaha for the next 50 years, fine. I will be the best local broadcaster I can be, and I'll keep having fun with it. I'm having a great time doing what I get to do now. I got to do this last weekend. I got to fill in on hockey Friday and Saturday night with big crowds. Omaha plays in an amazing hockey conference, the best hockey conference in the country. It's a big deal here. It was, an, it was amazing. Like I almost couldn't sleep after the game because it's such an adrenaline rush. And then I got to do two TV games on Sunday and that was awesome. And I love what I'm doing now. So I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep getting better at it. Wherever it leads is fine. But, um, I think I think just learning to enjoy where you are and what you get to do and to be grateful for it, that was the hard part. Hopefully everything that comes after this, while it'll still be challenging, I don't think it'll be as hard as learning that lesson was. So I don't know if that's really an answer, but no, that's a great pers- that's, that's, that's no, the best no, no. I've got right now. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great perspective, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and, and kind of giving us that look at it because it's easy to get lost in that in that journey sometimes. Yeah. Um, Donnie, if people want to find you or, uh, you know, find Donnie Barnes on the air or uh, if you want to plug like the 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 predecessor to this podcast, if you if people want to find Candid Voices, uh, how, do they, <laughs> how do they track that down? Oh, man. So let's see. I'm on Twitter at Donnie Barnes. My name is spelled weird. So it's Donnie with a Y and B-A-A-R-N-S. So at Donnie Barnes on Twitter and on Instagram. My broadcasting website is donnycast.com. My voiceover page is donnyvoice.com. Uh, yeah, I did do a podcast for a, for a couple of years, just a handful of episodes when uh, when I had no idea what I was doing. But uh, we did do some cool episodes, and it was it was fun. You guys you guys have come along and all do it much better now and in a much more refined way than I was doing it then. So you've all taken it to the the next level. That's but, just because I'm crazy. that helps yeah i listened to when i started listening to you i was like oh that's a great idea i should have thought of that years ago but um (laughs) but yeah so those are all archived at donnycast.com i recommend the john miller ones because they're they were really fun um but you'll even hear my voice six or seven years ago doing those episodes you're like what was he doing with his voice he had no idea how to speak then (laughs) so it's an example of how much I've had to work to try to learn to talk properly, which you wouldn't think a broadcaster would have to do. But so, yeah, I guess those are the places people can track me down. My email address is Donnie P Donnie PBP as in play by play at gmail.com. If people want to get in contact and yeah, I love, I love talking to people in the industry, love meeting people. It's, this is a, it's really fun what we get to do. It's really hard, but it's really fun. And if you hang in there and you persist, um, you can, I guess it's Conan O'Brien likes to say, if you're, if you work hard and you're kind, amazing things can happen. And um, it's true. It's corny, but it's really true. 
That's Donnie Barnes joining us here on Play by Playcast. You can find his stuff again online at Donnie Cast. Has the podcast archive with uh, candid voices as well. Um, you can contact him. He gave out his email address, so feel free to reach out to uh, to Donnie if you want to touch base. Uh, the voiceover stuff. I keep wanting to say voice acting. Uh, the voiceover stuff is awesome. I you just don't think about it. You know, like everybody watches instructional videos. Nobody thinks that there's got to be somebody like that's someone's job. They got to go voice the instructional videos. You can only wear blue or black shirts at Domino's. Like, <laughs> where are you? Where are you going to get that kind of information, folks? Only on this episode of PXP Cast. Thanks as always for clicking subscribe, stream, download. Check out the back archive; they are always available for you as well. And we look forward to seeing you back here next Friday on PXP Cast. See you. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.